Church, don't you just love a great redemption story? Yeah, love you guys, man. Love your boldness to share that. Uh, man, just today is defined by boldness already. We contacted three people who were getting baptized. Hey, we had somebody get baptized first hour. We told them, hey, the heater's out in the baptistry. We can postpone it if you'd like. We can figure out another plan. All three of them are like, no, that's not getting in our way. Listen, y'all, that water is cold. Like, you've been outside? The water's cold. <laughs> and they all decided we're all in. What a beautiful thing. And uh, yeah, man, new life. Beautiful, beautiful stuff going on. Uh, bold story. I want to share with you um, a moment that happened in our family several years ago. Uh, my wife, Jen, her youngest sister is Jessica. And Jessica met her now husband, Greg, when they both served in the Air Force. And they began dating. And as they were getting more serious with their dating and kind of getting on the brink of engagement, they thought, you know, it's a good idea for us to meet each other's families. Well, right about that time, Jessica got deployed overseas. But Greg determined to still take a trek to central Illinois to meet my wife's family, you know, meet the family of his, uh, you know, maybe future bride, Jessica. And you know, it sounds bold and sounds brave and courageous. He didn't know the brother-in-laws. It's just stupid um, <laughs> because we are pranksters. And so that week we had fun connecting, getting to know this guy. And at one point we had everybody in the family there, bunches of kids. We had all of the, the sisters and the brother-in-law laws and uh, Sue and Cal, my parents-in-law, and Sue had made this real nice meal, this great lasagna. And at one point, somewhat early in the meal, my brother-in-law, Phil, leans into Greg, who he's sitting next to, as though Greg were whispering something to him. Phil scoots back in astonishment. It's like, really? No, Greg, I don't think Sue's lasagna is dry. I like her cooking. <laughs> hey, Greg, welcome to the family, brother. <laughs> We haven't stopped teasing each other since. And Greg went on to, to defend himself from something he had not said, and I think he's still trying to dig out of that hole. But friends, have you ever been in a dinner situation at a dinner party where something awkward has happened, something kind of out of the normal has happened? Well, today we begin chapter 11 in our Quest 52 book. And this is the book we're using as a devotional to kind of guide our journey this year in our year-long pursuit of Jesus. We begin week 11 this week. If you are new or newer to us, or maybe you've gotten out of rhythm, just jump in on chapter 11 this week. You don't have to worry about making up for lost ground. Just jump in where we are. And you know, I love something that Mandy said in that testimony. She said, you know, I just found a devotion and I began doing it every day. Well, here's what I know. If you will give Jesus 15 minutes a day, all year long, at the end of this year, your life will look drastically different. It won't even take a year. In fact, you start to give him 15 minutes a day, pretty soon you're gonna hunger for a lot more than that. But you meet with Jesus 15 minutes every day, he will change your life. So friends, I encourage you to do that. Now the question that we're addressing this week, the question in chapter 11 is this, does my past determine my future? And we're gonna join Jesus and some others at a dinner party to see how Jesus might answer that question. So we begin in Luke chapter seven, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, the Pharisees, this was a group of religious leaders and teachers, and they were, uh, they kind of get a bad rap 
as being spiritually arrogant, very dogmatic, and very much to the letter of the law. And they became the, the main antagonists of Jesus. And that's a fair rap for the, the group of them as a whole. But we gotta remember, there were individuals within that, and they did not begin with bad intent. Actually, the Pharisees began with good intent. They wanted to honor God's law. They wanted to pursue God's holiness. They wanted to show great devotion to God at a time when many others were walking away, when others were compromising their faith. But as can often happen, they began to fall more in love with the law than with God. They began to put their faith and their hope in their behavior, not in a savior. And so they began to wander from what they needed and just found themselves very rigid and dogmatic in rules and regulations. Now that's easy to do. Like rules are always easier than relationships. So we need to stay on guard against that as well. Well, there they are at this meal and then this happens. A certain immoral woman from the city heard that Jesus was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now, we're translating from the Greek language 2,000 years ago, and sometimes the translation loses a little bit of its emphasis. This phrase, immoral woman, in its original context, that was somebody who was totally given over to their sin, somebody who was identified by their sin, somebody who wore their sin and the shame of their sin as their identity. And most likely, and we can't be 100% sure, but the most likely, very probable explanation for this is when that was used in that language, it often referred to a prostitute. So here's a prostitute at this meal, and this alabaster jar she has. That's a jar of perfume, very expensive perfume, perhaps the most expensive thing she owned. And it's probably what she used every night in her line of work. But it does make you wonder, how does this woman get into that dinner party with the religious leaders? Well, when a Pharisee was, uh, the, the top Pharisee in town, when a rabbi would come to town, and a rabbi is a Jewish religious leader. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher, a Jewish teacher of, of religion. When he showed up into town, it was the custom for the top Pharisee in town to host a dinner with that traveling rabbi, the visiting rabbi, and other religious leaders. And this was a known event. Other people would know about it. So <clears throat> they, they hosted this meal, and then others would be invited to the meal. Now, not the whole town would be invited to the meal, but other people would know this was going on, so they would come to the gate of the home, or if it were indoors, they would come into the courtyard of the home, and they would look in through the windows, stand in the doorway. They would listen in to the conversation. And if the visiting rabbi was friends with the Pharisee, they would just listen in to this great conversation. But sometimes they were at odds. They might see the law and interpret the law a little bit differently from each other. And so others would listen in to somewhat of a friendly or maybe a not so friendly debate. And that's what was going on there. So this woman comes and she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Now, there tables for dining in the first century in that Jewish culture were very different than our dining tables. They sat low to the ground, about six inches off the ground. They were in a U shape, and the host and the honored guests would typically sit at the top of the U. Others gathered around, and they would recline on their left elbow on a pillow next to the table with their feet out behind them and eat with their right hand and have the meal that way. 
So what that means is sometimes when we read scripture, we read our culture into it, we can miss some things going on. She's sitting at his feet, his feet are reclined out behind him, that's where she is. This also means that Da Vinci got it wrong, right? Like it's probably not what the Last Supper looked like. And if you ever wondered, it just kind of strikes you, doesn't it? Like whoever was supposed to secure the table that night shows up, asks the host, hey, we, we need a table for 26. There's uh, only 13 of you. You waiting on dates? Now, nah, it don't make sense when you see the picture, right? Like, just kind of this weird setting there. So we go on in this, and uh, Luke continues on. This woman kneeling at Jesus' feet, her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Now, I'm not a guy endowed with marvelous hair, but I live with people who do have quite nice heads of hair. And I know that even in our culture, like, you don't use your hair to wipe someone's feet. Well, especially in that culture at that time, it was an even bigger deal. For her hair to be let down was a sign that she was maybe a, not uh, a woman of the night, we'll say. And for her to be wiping his, his feet, that's, your hair was a big deal. So she's using her hair as a towel. Well, then she kept kissing his feet. That just put some of you on edge right there. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited her saw this, he said to himself, now he's thinking these thoughts. He's not saying this out loud. He's thinking these thoughts. If this man truly were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, we can too easily read over this and miss the gravity of this situation. So we need to remind ourselves, it's not just a story in a book. This is a real experience, a real moment in history. These are real people, and this was really awkward. This was uncomfortable, this was scandalous. To help us understand what's happening in this situation, to understand what the author wanted his readers to understand this, this uncomfortableness of it, for us to understand how uncomfortable it was for Jesus, for the Pharisee, for the others at that dinner, what, what was happening in this moment. It, it might help us to imagine a similar-ish kind of situation in our culture. So let's just pretend you invite the preacher over for dinner. And as I sit at your table, there's a woman on the street corner who makes her way into the home. She's dressed for her work that night. High heels, red lipstick, you know, all made up. Wearing the red dress, it's a bit too high. Cut a bit low, revealing quite a bit. Very awkward, she kneels down, gotta avert the eyes. And you're thinking like the Pharisee would, what is he doing letting a woman like that even touch him? Doesn't he know what those hands have done, where they've been, who else they've touched? Doesn't he know what that perfume is used for? Doesn't he know what she's done with those lips, who she's kissed, how she's? You starting to feel the uncomfortableness? Sort of feel a little awkward? We don't often talk about these kinds of things in church. Listen, the Bible is true, it's also edgy. Be careful not to sanitize it. If you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit like, Oh, my kids are next to me. You're getting what Luke is communicating. This was a radically uncomfortable moment. And so Jesus then answered 
the thoughts of the Pharisee. Isn't that great? The Pharisee looks at him and says, if this man truly were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. Obviously, he's not a prophet. Yet, Jesus answers his thoughts. Only a prophet or someone greater would be able to answer the thoughts of another. And Jesus says to him, Simon, let's pause right there. Last week, we took a look at a person named Simon, Simon Peter. This is a different Simon, Simon the Pharisee. Don't get them confused. Simon was a common name back then, like Joseph or Mary or David or John, kind of like in our culture, especially for me growing up back in the 80s, 90s, Jennifer, Amy, John, Mike, those are very common names. Simon is a common name. This is a different Simon than who we looked at last week. And he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Now, that's a phrase in that culture that means I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear. I'm gonna tell you a hard truth, so buckle up. And friend, I think Jesus says that to us all the time. I've got something to say, are you ready to hear it? I got something to say that you might not like to hear. But here's the deal, when you accept Jesus into your life, you accept what Jesus says about your life. And Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. So he has some stuff he wants to say to you, and you would be wise to listen and to obey. You would be wise to respond like Simon responds. Simon says to him, go ahead, teacher. I'm listening. Go ahead and share. So Jesus tells him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. Now, this silver, these silver coins were denarii. And a denarius was worth about a week's wage. You may have heard it said that it was worth about a day's wages, You'd be pretty well off. I mean, to actually study the history, all things being equal, if, if you were an average person, this would be about a week's worth of wage. So the one who owes 50 of these denarii owes about a year's worth of wages. The one who owes 500 owes about a decade's worth of wages. And in that culture, that context, at that time, that is an insurmountable debt. That is a pathway to slavery. This person is stuck. And so Jesus continues on. Neither of them could repay him. So the lender kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts, outlandish, that would never happen, right? Well, who do you suppose loved him more after that? This is Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, notice what he does, he continues talking to Simon, but he looks at the woman. And he says to her, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, Simon, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not, or you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Now again, let's not move too quickly here. We need to understand some cultural context. It's not often that we wash people's feet in our culture when they come to our home. But you might ask them to remove their shoes, especially if it's been raining or they've walked through some dust or mud or it's snowy. You might say, oh, please remove your shoes. But in that culture, it was custom that as you entered somebody's home, they would have a basin there for water and you would remove your sandals and you'd wash your feet. They'd have the basin for you to wash your feet. If they were really kind, they wanted to show honor to you, they might wash your feet for you if they were wealthier, they might have a servant who would wash your feet for you. Well, this Pharisee did none of that for Jesus. 
Also in our culture, we don't greet one another with a kiss. And many of you are very glad for that. Listen, I'm a touchy kind of guy, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feeler, so for me, um, you know, I love a handshake, a man pat, a fist bump, a, a side hug, I'm, I'm all about like, hey, what's up, you know, high five, like, that's me. But even I am glad we don't kiss one another upon seeing each other. Now, some of you husbands are like, yeah, but when I get home from work, hey, honey, maybe we should bring that back a little more often, right? Now, some of the wives are like, maybe you should bring back, like, washing my feet, and I'll see if I kiss you when you get home, boy, right? But, you know, for some of you, this is like really good news that our culture is different than that. Because some of you are like, you know, just keep the distance, honor the personal space, a wave, a smile, maybe a head nod. That's, that's plenty. Like, I don't, I don't need the fist bump. Like, stay away. So you're glad we don't kiss. But in that culture, the custom was you entered somebody's home, and if you were a friend or an equal, they would kiss you on the cheek. It was a way of showing respect, a way of showing honor, a way of showing friendship. So if you were to not do that, if you were to not receive the kiss, it was a way of being slighted or shamed. Oh, I don't respect you. You are not my equal. We are not on friend status. And that's what happens to Jesus there. And again, the oil on the head thing. Now, in that culture, oil was used for several different things. You would use oil to anoint the head of somebody who was being anointed as the new priest or as king. You might anoint somebody for other special purposes for healing or for ceremonial cleansing, on and on the list goes. One of the things that oil was used for was you would put a small dab of oil on somebody's head when they entered your home. It was a show of courtesy, of respect, of honor, of acknowledging them. It was often fragrant oil that might help improve the smell if you've been outside. They didn't have the soap and deodorant we have today, so it was kind of a nice gesture. Now, honestly, my head gets shiny and oily enough as it is. I'm glad we don't do that one, but... We just have different customs. And what this means is we have very different customs in our culture than they had back then. 2,000 years has passed. It's a different time, different culture. But our way of doing things is not necessarily better or worse, good or bad. It's just different than the culture in which the Bible was written. But we need to make sure that we understand that there's a difference between oftentimes how we're reading the Bible and how it was intended to be read, the culture of that time. There's a difference there that if we miss that, we can misread the Bible, and then we're in danger of misapplying the Bible. So here we have this situation. This prostitute has cleansed Jesus' feet with her tears and her kisses. She's wiped them clean with her hair. She has given her most expensive possession to perfume his feet. And the Pharisee looks upon this and says, she's not worthy to do that. She's not even worthy to be your servant. She's such a bad sinner. Wow. Too sinful to serve. But did you notice how Jesus treated her? Jesus turned to the woman and spoke to Simon. Just the opposite of what would happen. This woman, I'm sure, was used to having people talk about her and not to her. But Jesus looked at her, looks her in the eyes. He sees her. He lets her know she is seen. She was undoubtedly overlooked and most likely had no one to look after her. That's probably why she was in the line of work she was in. She didn't have many other options. So what a beautiful sight for Jesus to look at her. 
Now, most people would have turned away from her. Kind of like in our culture, you're walking down the street and there's a homeless person. We tend to walk around, avoid. We don't look at the person. We pretend to be busy on our phone or in a conversation with somebody else. We might walk to the other side of the street. We don't acknowledge. And that's how this woman would have been treated daily. She was known, not just in this moment, but that was her reputation in town. Used to being talked about, but never talked to. And here Jesus looks at her, invites her into the conversation. She's noticed, she's known, she's welcomed, she's part of the conversation. And Jesus had a knack for doing that. He had a knack for elevating the lowly. He had a knack for welcoming the people who were so often unwelcomed in all the other places. But don't miss this. Jesus had a knack for making women feel honored and valued, respected, and elevated at a time when they were often dishonored and devalued, disrespected, ignored, seen as a second class, a second tier. Jesus elevated them. So guys, if you wanna be like Jesus, you'll do the same. You'll honor the women around you. You will value them. You will elevate them. You will respect them. Listen to what Jesus says to her. He's looking at her talking to Simon and he says this. I tell you her sins and they are many. Listen, Jesus, he doesn't slight her sins. He doesn't just blow over it. He he doesn't ignore the sin. He doesn't pretend like it's not that bad. He gives full weight to her sinfulness. Her sins, and they are many. He does not ignore them, but nor is he hindered by them. Her sins, all of them, have been forgiven. And because of that, she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Well, the, Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. But the men at the table, they said amongst themselves, who does this guy think he is? That he could go around forgiving sins? That's right, because only God can forgive sins. Listen, you may have heard somebody tell you somewhere along the lines, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did, all the time. Because with that statement, that's a bold statement. Jesus is claiming the authority to do only what God can do. And he did that on the regular. This is not the first time he claimed to be able to forgive sins. It would not be the last. And I'm glad he's still in that business of forgiving sins. Right? Amen to that. And so these men sitting at the table, their issue is that they think this woman has sinned worse than they have, that their sins are lesser than hers, that this woman was a a much greater sinner than they were. But ironically, the sin of spiritual pride, of spiritual arrogance is actually far more insidious and perhaps most dangerous to us. The sin of spiritual arrogance that those men had is the most dangerous sin because it keeps us from being able to recognize how great our need for grace is, how much we really need to be forgiven. It minimizes our issue by maximizing others. We tend to do that, it's human nature. We tend to do that because it makes us feel better about ourselves, but it keeps us from actually getting what we need and that's the forgiveness we need. So friend, for you, do you think God loves them, whoever your them is? those people who sin worse than you? Do you think God loves them as much as he loves you? He's willing to forgive them as much as he's willing to forgive you? That he cares for them as much as he cares for you? See, our danger is we can do what the Pharisees did. 
we can think that they're in greater need, that their sin is even worse. But if we don't recognize the depth of our own sin debt, we will miss and not fully appreciate the magnitude of the forgiveness we need to receive. See, being forgiven doesn't really mean much if you don't think you've done anything wrong. So if we err on the side of the Pharisees, we don't think we have done that much wrong, then forgiveness really doesn't sound that great. Eh, no big deal, I'm not that bad. The reality is we're all pretty bad. You know, that's a funny thing about this story Jesus told. One person's in debt 50 coins, another in debt 500 coins. Well, which of them needs it more? Guess what? They're both bankrupt. Neither one of them can pay their debt. They're both equally in need. Their sin might be different, but they both need help and neither has anything to offer. And friend, that's us. That's exactly where we are spiritually. Every single one of us is spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. And we all have nothing to offer but our brokenness. And so we are all equally in need of Jesus. We might have a different indebtedness. Maybe you have sinned differently than I have, but you've sinned no worse than me. I've sinned no worse than you. Maybe the consequences of your sin bear out differently in this world. But in the eyes of God, we both are in need of forgiveness. We're both in need of grace. And we have nothing to offer. We're bankrupt and we can't pay the debt. So whether it's 50 or 500 sin coins that you've accumulated, you're stuck. And we need somebody else to pay the debt for us. And isn't that the great news of the gospel? That that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate in a big way, but we celebrate it every week here. We celebrate it with communion. We celebrate it with a message. We celebrate it with song. That that is what our Savior did, that he came to save us. That what Jesus did on the cross was forgive our sin debt. He came, he paid the debt that we could not pay on our own. He forgave us and he freed us. What a beautiful thing that is. He took our shame and he gave us forgiveness. You know that woman, she had not sinned worse than those men, she just sinned differently. And it's so easy to see the different sins of other people as somehow being worse than our own. But it is no worse, it's just different. This woman, she knew that she was a sinner. She knew how bad her sin was. She knew how grievous her actions were. She knew her need for forgiveness, she knew that the only person who could give what she needed was Jesus. And the one thing she needed, she knew, was grace, was his forgiveness. And Jesus alone could provide that. So Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You're not saved by the work you do. You're not saved because you showed up and you washed my feet and you gave me the gift of perfume. There's nothing you can bring but your brokenness. You have nothing to get out of debt but I will pay that debt for you if you'll trust me to do so. That's Jesus' words to her, those are Jesus' words to us. The only thing we bring is our brokenness, because friend, that's all we've got. So we put our hope, we put our trust, we put our faith and our confidence in Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, we're really not a lot different than that woman, are we? I mean, everybody's got a shame story. So encouraging to see Stu and Mandy Share some of theirs. For some of us, you know, we probably have several shame stories. There tends to be one that might dominate the landscape of the others. But we're no different than that woman, than Sue, than Mandy. We've all got a story. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. 
Maybe you've blown it with your kids as a parent. Maybe you've blown it with your parents as a kid. Maybe you've blown it with a sibling or a friend. Maybe a whole friend circle. Maybe you've blown it with your employees or your employer, your coworkers, your peers, your teammates. Maybe you've got that addiction. Just you can't hide anymore. It's bringing you to the shame. It's, it's clouding your reputation. And that addiction looks worse than others. And maybe you're the person with the addiction. It's easier to hide it. It's easier to keep it secret. Maybe, maybe culture doesn't say that it's that bad, but you know it's that thing that owns you. You just can't get past it. We've all got a shame story. Mine, mine was a long-time addiction. I wrestled with my vice for decades. Kept it hidden, kept it something kind of in the past. Sometimes I could measure my sobriety in a year or more. Sometimes I could measure sobriety in days. That was it. Finally got the best of me, finally broke me back in the fall of 2017. I couldn't hide it any longer. I'd crossed some boundaries, a broken trust. It broke me. It took my job, I was afraid it was gonna take everything else. It, I resigned my position as an associate pastor at a church I loved with people I loved and a place I loved. I had family there, some of my best friends were there. Man, it brought some wreckage. But I was fortunate. Fortunate that I had a church that loved me enough that they chose to rally, to seek to help me find recovery to help restore me back to ministry. I had a wife who has walked with me every step, every moment of the way to help restore me. And then I found this church. Church says they're pretty big on grace and they love celebrating redemption stories. And here we are. What a beautiful thing. We had church leadership who lives it out. And it's all about what God does, right? It's all about his grace, his glory. And listen, I, I still wrestle. I still wrestle with regret. I gotta beat those demons down. I still wrestle with shame. I gotta kick the shame to the curb when it starts wanting to chirp in my ear. I wish I were bulletproof, but I'm not. I still gotta stay on guard against the old vices, against the old temptations. I'm still human. But I walk in the grace and the freedom, the power and the authority of our good God. And friend, he wants you to do the same. See, every one of us has a shame story. A shame story that defines a moment of your life, maybe defines a season of your life, but God does not desire that it define the whole of you. God does not desire that your shame, that your story would be defined by that thing forever. No, he wants to redeem you. And he will if, if you bring it to him. See, if you allow yourself to be broken like that woman, if, if you bring your shame to Jesus, if, if you allow it, your brokenness, to bring you to your knees at the feet of Jesus, he'll forgive you. He'll redeem you. He'll free you from it. So that's exactly what that woman did. She knelt at his feet weeping. I love the original language. The original language connotes this idea that her tears fell like rain flooding onto the feet of Jesus, that they just poured down. And listen, sometimes gratitude shows up with a smile and a woo. Sometimes gratitude pours down in a flood of tears. Sometimes gratitude shows up in brokenness. 
prostrate at the foot of the cross, weeping. You know, when our tears rain down on repentance, God's forgiveness rains down on us. When we come at the feet of Jesus and our tears rain down in gratitude, the Spirit rains down as peace upon us. And that's exactly what God desires for you. When you came in today, friend, you received a card like this. This is my shame story. Go ahead and grab that card right now. And I want you to think, as we wrap up here, I want you to think about what your shame story is. If you could boil your shame story down to just one word, one phrase, what would that be? If you would to define that area of your life that's broken. And maybe you're like the Pharisee, maybe your brokenness is that you've been judging other people instead of recognizing how great your need is for forgiveness. Or maybe you know full well what you've done wrong. Maybe nobody else knows, maybe you've been hiding. Maybe you've just been carrying the burden, the pain, the problem for a long time and it's time to let it go. Jesus has forgiven you, but you wanna just keep picking up that baggage and it's time to lay it at his feet. But I wanna encourage you, if you could boil it down to one word or one phrase, go ahead and write that word, that phrase on this card and do it in this moment. Because in a minute, we're gonna invite you to come forward and leave those cards here. We're gonna be singing a song, and during that song, I invite you to come, and you leave your shame here. You may have heard it said, you know, when you come to church, you leave your, your pain and your problems, your baggage, you leave all that at the door, you come in, and you worship God free from all that. That's a good idea, except the problem is that then when you leave, you gotta pick all that stuff up again and carry it with you. Oftentimes, it feels even heavier as you go. And it seems just the opposite of what Jesus is. Jesus invites us, bring your burdens, Bring your baggage, bring your pain, bring your problems, bring your sin, your shame, your doubt, your problems, all of it, bring the mess and leave it here, leave it at his feet. Leave it with him and then go in peace knowing that you're forgiven. Like that's the invitation of Jesus. So for those of you joining us online, you just find a piece of paper, a napkin, a card, find whatever, you just write on something. For those of you here, I want you to write your shame story. And in a moment after I pray, we wanna invite you to come and to leave those in the front. You don't have to put your name on it. In fact, if you do feel compelled to put your name, please only use your first name because this week, the staff, the elders, now we're, we're gonna pray over those cards. We're gonna pray that the chains of shame are broken for you. We're gonna pray that you walk in the peace and you walk in the forgiveness that God has given you if you surrender your life to him. If you've not yet surrendered to him, well, then you need to just Put yourself at the feet of Jesus. Surrender the whole of it. You need to take that brave step, that bold step of getting in that water and surrendering your life to him and finding new life in him. But if you have done that, carry the shame no more. Because Jesus' invitation for you is the same as it was for that woman. That you come and you leave it all at the feet of Jesus. And that you go in peace knowing you've been forgiven. Now, when you bring those cards forward, if you need prayer, if you're joining us online, you can just let the host know that you need prayer. There's a button there for it as well. And we're going to have some people waiting in the wings over here. If you need prayer today, we would love to pray for you during that time. They'll be available after service as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your radical, ridiculous forgiveness that you are the shame breaker, the shame stealer, that you stole all our shame with what you did on the cross. 
And God, we thank you. We come grateful. We come as people who recognize not just the enormity of our sin, but who acknowledge even more the magnitude of the forgiveness you give us. You are such a good God. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us peace. Thank you that we need not carry the shame anymore. God, I pray for everyone here and joining us online that when we walk out today, the baggage is here, that we walk a little bit lighter. We walk a little bit freer, knowing we're forgiven. And we pray this all, Lord, that you would get the glory, the honor, and the praise. Amen.